You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're getting ready for summer and discussing the importance of summer camps to the American Jewish experience. How did summer camps become an important part of Jewish adolescence? What are the goals of these sleepaway camps? And how do those goals reflect Jewish leaders' anxieties about the future? And as the American Jewish community continues to wrestle with questions over intermarriage, assimilation, and the importance of queer Jews and Jews of color to Jewish communities, how will Jewish summer camps continue to change to address today's issues? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Sandra Fox. She is the author of the new book, The Jews of Summer, Summer Camp and Jewish Culture in Postwar America. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming June issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Sandy. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi, it's great to chat with you, too. I'm great. Great. So I loved reading your book. I will admit to listeners here at the start that I happen to be a product of one of the Jewish summer camp movements discussed in the book. I personally have some ambivalences about summer camp, but for several people I know, they think of summer camp as one of the biggest highlights of their Jewish experience, and their faces light up whenever we talk about camp. So I'm very excited to talk to you about this phenomenon. So I want to start in a way so that all of our listeners can be on the same page. How did summer camps become an important aspect of the American Jewish youth experience? What led to the growth and popularity of sleepaway camps as places where American Jewish adolescents should spend their summers? Great question. And there are a lot of different ways to answer that question. There's the geographic aspect to all of this, which is that in the history of American camping, when it really started to take shape in the early 20th century, most campers were in the Northeast. There's some statistics that in the 1930s, about 50% of all American campers were from kind of the New York or maybe the Boston area. Hmm. So this is a very Northeast story. And Jews lived, you know, the Jewish population was disproportionately at that time in the Northeast. So as Jews wanted to embrace aspects of America and take part in American mass culture, um, they gravitated towards camps, just like the other people, the other white people around them, I should say. It was a very white experience at this time. Um, and wanted to send their kids to camp as well. And that snowballed over time into making it an important aspect of American Jewish culture, something that not all Jews go through, but enough Jews go through it that, you know, if you walk into a room full of Jews, a a way that people create a sense of, oh, I might know you from somewhere. And Jews of all ages uh, do this. What camp did you go to is often the question that's asked. maybe even before what college or what school. So it, it there's the geographic aspect. And then there's some other things. So American summer camping becomes a, a wider phenomenon from the 1920s through the 1940s. And that's a period of rising anti-Semitism in America, this nativist 1920s in particular. So Jews are not welcome into most uh, camps that serve Gentiles. It's either explicit or it's implicit. 
And also some Jewish families do prefer having their kids socialize with um, their fellow Jews. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because, you know, of course, Jews did live in in urban neighborhoods that were heavily Jewish, but recreation and leisure was not necessarily um, so separate in the cities. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jewish children went to public school Mm -hmm. in in the vast majority of cases, it's not quite like with, um, you know, Catholic immigrants where there was this Catholic school system. Mm-hmm. Jews did not really uh, create Jewish schools, day schools until later on in the 20th century. So another reason that summer camps become an important aspect of the American Jewish youth experience is that for at least some families and certainly for some Jewish institutions, it was an opportunity for Jewish children to be socialized within the Jewish community to learn, you know, either Jewish religious values or cultural or political values. Um, And that only begins, that only comes to take more and more importance uh, as the 20th century goes on. Great. So there's many different types of Jewish summer camps, and we're going to discuss some of those different types today. But you make the point in the book that even though there's a range of Jewish sleepaway camps that emphasize different things, you ultimately say that these different types of Jewish camps had striking similarities. So overall, broadly speaking, what would you say have been the main goals of Jewish summer camps? That's very dependent on the time period. So I'll just, I'll make some, I'll make some delineations and differences between different times. So in the early, early to mid 20th century, where you have mostly immigrants or the children of immigrants attending camps, most camps that serve Jewish children did not have particularly educational goals when it came to Jewish education. Some did, but the vast majority were primarily recreational spaces that were harnessing the summer camp to Americanized Jewish children. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were ran by settlement houses, groups like the YMHA. And that was the primary goal of those camps. There were some cultural Jewish camps that were affiliated with Yiddish organizations or Hebraist organizations. But it's only in the mid 20th century, in the aftermath of World War II, that you get a, a much larger expansion of Jewish camps that have basically quite ideological goals. The different kinds of camps that I studied are the ones that uh, I refer to as the most heavily ideological or educational, and we can get into what I mean by that. But these were Yiddishist summer camps, Zionist summer camps, uh, reform and conservative camps, um, affiliated with Yiddishist, Zionist, reform and conservative movements. So what's similar about them is the way that all of their leaders harness the the summer camp, the sleepaway camp, and it's 24-7 totalizing character Mm -hmm. to bring Jewish children into their ideologies. Their ideologies differed, but the thing that they all gravitated towards was the summer camp and they utilized it in very, very similar ways. So you asked what the main goals have been. I would say their unifying goals, the things that they've shared in the post-war period was a sense that Jewish culture was in decline and that the summer camp could be the solution to it, mm. that bringing kids into a controlled environment, and they used the word words control. I mean, they talked about it very openly, that bringing children into a controlled environment where they would live in Jewishness, that was the main goal, was to basically produce better, more ideal, more authentic Jews than what uh, camp leaders believed were being produced in American suburbia. So that was the shared goal. 
but their different visions of what that authentic Jew looked like is what makes them different. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that uh, struck me in your book was how following World War II and knowledge of what happened in the Holocaust was then this shift for Jewish leaders in the United States of the idea that if Europe is no longer going to be the center sort of of world Jewry, that now that pressure falls to them. And as you explained, summer camps become one way that they imagine creating a flourishing Jewish future now that the major hub of the Jewish population has shifted from Europe to the United States. So you mentioned four different types of camps uh, in your last answer that you talk about in the book. I'm wondering if you could help listeners visualize some of the differences in those camps. So you mentioned Yiddishist, Zionist, Reform, and Conservative. How would you describe these different camps? How would they look and feel different to the campers themselves? It's an interesting question. I don't think they would look different. I mean, their environments wouldn't look vastly different. That is one of the things they share. They are modern American summer camps. What I mean by modern is the earliest summer camps at the turn of the 20th century were very small camping experiences, often for the most elite children in the Northeast. And usually that meant a pastor, occasionally a rabbi, but mostly um, Christian denominations or Boy Scout troops taking a couple kids or not a couple, but let's say a dozen or two kids out to nature and there are tents and it's really like a pioneering experience. American Jewish camps really came into existence in a period where the summer camp was becoming more modernized, where there were facilities like bunks and other built spaces. And so from what I can tell from pictures, uh, most of these camps looked really similar, although some camps would have a facility that another camp wouldn't have. So for instance, a Yiddish summer camp was maybe more likely to have an indoor theater or a stage because stage productions were really important in Yiddish summer camps with the whole history of Yiddish theater, while a lot of other camps might have had a platform or some place where they they did performances, but maybe not, it didn't look quite as much like a theater. Camps that prayed would have a space for prayer to take place, not mm. a synagogue building usually, but some outdoor space. And mm -hmm. not all Jewish camps had prayer services. So there are some physical differences, but on the whole, that's not where their differences lie quite as much. What they felt like, also probably more similarities than differences, but the languages that were being spoken around the children, or at least were being utilized in symbolic ways would have been different. So Zionist camps are really, really infused or and also were even more infused in some cases in the mid 20th century with Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Some of them tried to become fully immersive Hebrew speaking spaces, in particular, um, this camp, Camp Masad, that had a couple locations attempted to be a fully immersive Hebrew environment. Yiddish camps, on the other hand, drew from Yiddish. Originally, they were Yiddish speaking because children spoke Yiddish from the home. But that faded very, very quickly, and they came to use Yiddish in very similar symbolic ways uh, as did Zionists. And so that's a good example of they're using different languages, but how it would feel different? I'm not sure, because in, in both cases, to some extent, you have campers experiencing the difference of home versus camp through language. Mm -hmm. um, and also reform and conservative camps had Hebrew ideologies as well. Um, that changed over the course of the period and depended on camp, like it went from camp to camp a little bit differently. But language is a piece of that feeling of camp is different than home. Camp is somewhere that Judaism is lived, where it's a, a living culture. Yeah. 
So one of the things that's coming through in what you're saying and that you talk about in the book that might be a surprise to some listeners is that you've described an emphasis on education at camps in in a variety of forms. In the book, you say that many of the Jewish summer camps were, quote unquote, heavily educational. So that maybe suggests it wasn't just about canoeing or, or swimming. There was apparently learning too, or the hope that learning would take place. So what do you mean when you describe camps as heavily educational? What types of things were being taught and, and how were they being taught? Yeah, I think it's important first to say that all camps are educational in some way, shape, or form. Even the idea of just camp as a place that's recreational, that takes kids away from school, that gives them independence from their families, builds nature skills and all sorts of other things like that, that's all education, right? But when I look at Jewish camps, um, you know, I'm often asked by people who come to my talks or who email me, oh, did you you know, did you study the camp I went to? And sometimes they went to a camp, oftentimes they went to a camp that was mostly Jewish in its clientele or entirely Jewish in its clientele. Maybe it had on, on Friday evening for to mark the Sabbath, they would light candles and wear white. But beyond that, there was no Jewish content. But that's still a Jewish camp. I'm not saying those aren't Jewish camps. That's a Jewish camp too. Um, the camps I chose to study basically because you can't study all of them, but also because these less educational, less intensely uh, ideological camps don't necessarily have archives um, mm. because that there's a correlation there, right? How important you think the thing you're doing uh, was to the history of the Jewish people um, mm-hmm. often correlated with who made sure their stuff got archived. So I made a very purposeful effort to look at a vast array of different kinds of Jewish camps, but they all are very similar in that education, Jewish education was at the center of what they did. And heavily educational in, is not just that they had, let's say, an educational hour every day, which they did. All of these camps had every single day, except for Shabbat, um, an hour of the schedule schedule dedicated to Jewish learning. Um, whether that was something about the religion or about the culture or about Jewish languages, but that actually every single hour of the day had to do with the camp's ideology. Hmm. Um, these camps rarely wasted a moment. And when they did have moments that were kind of quote unquote purely recreational, I think a lot of the camp leaders whose writings I found would say that they had to include these things, you know, because otherwise campers would be unhappy. And to get the buy-in of campers, you do have to, you know, the buy-in to the the whole ideological project, campers also have to feel like they had a good time and that mm-hmm. they were free. Mm-hmm. Um, so heavily educational really refers to camps where every single hour of the day, somehow, some way actually plays into the camp's um, ideological mission. Great. I'm having flashbacks as you're talking to very my own camping experiences. We won't get into that, though. Uh, so I want to stay with this a bit because I think this connects to one of the uh, main themes that you talk about in the book, where you say that uh, the goals of many of the Jewish summer camp leaders, as well as perhaps the institutions and donors behind them, reflected anxieties that shaped American Jewish life in the second half of the 20th century. Can you tell us what were those anxieties and then how do you see them shaping Jewish camping experiences? Essentially, American Jews, as they enter the post-war period, 
they're living in a very, very interesting kind of contradiction. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, American Jews have had never been, I would almost say Jews anywhere in the world (laughs) had almost never been as um, comfortable in a society as Jews were starting to feel in post-war America. They were um, largely middle class or entering the middle class. They were moving to suburbia where they could have space and other kinds of luxurious comfort that they did not have in the cities they were living in. And they were becoming more socially comfortable. They were able to get jobs in places they were previously not uh, welcome in. They were allowed to go to colleges where they were previously blocked by quotas. In other words, anti-Semitism was on the decline. And that very much had to do with the fact that it was right after the Holocaust and a lot of Americans who maybe previously would express some anti-Semitic views in polite company, no longer would do so. And so Jews have, you know, they're becoming white, they're becoming affluent, they're entering suburbia. What could go wrong, right? I mean, this, this all, these all sounds like, these sound like positives, you know, nothing to complain about here. But actually, um, when we think about the fact that this was in the direct aftermath of the Holocaust, we can start to understand how even these seemingly positive changes would actually lead to quite a lot of anxiety on behalf of American Jews, particularly Jewish leaders. I don't think most Jews in suburbia were worrying so much about this, but um, the people who were in charge of Jewish institutions and Jewish education certainly were worried about it. Um, They worried, in, in short, that these kids who were growing up only knowing American affluent suburban comfort and social uh, inclusion would not become Jews, uh, would not behave as Jews as their elders understood Jews should behave or be. That there was something in that affluence and comfort that was antithetical to authentic Mm -hmm. Jewishness. Mm -hmm. So Again, it sounds like complaining about a lot of privilege, and in some ways that's true. But when you think about the fact that the Holocaust had just happened and that American Jews are at the same time that all of these positive changes at home are happening for them, they are basically carrying the weight of the Holocaust on their shoulders, that they know that Jewish culture is theirs to carry into the future. There's no European jury to look to anymore. I think that... um, it can be hard to understand for anyone like our age, you know, who grew up way after the Holocaust. But in the early 20th century, I, I think a lot of American Jews psychologically were able to assimilate and embrace America, knowing that back at home, you know, back where their families came from in Europe, someone was kind of holding down the fort of whatever they thought authentic Jewishness to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that fort was gone. So American Jews are, you know, experiencing this comfort and the social mobility and appreciating it, but at the same time, really, really concerned about the future of Judaism, um, about the the lures of assimilation. And eventually they start to get worried about intermarriage because societal acceptance, being allowed to go to universities and to get jobs among uh, their Gentile neighbors, of course, that's positive. But for a lot of Jews who believed that the only way the Jewish people would have a future was through endogamy, through marriage, you know, between Jews, uh, any change in that sort of rate of marriage, of intermarriage, uh, started to create a lot of anxiety as well. And so it sounds like you're saying summer camps become one tactic 
to try to curtail assimilation and intermarriage by putting Jewish adolescents and college counselors, et cetera, together for the summer as a tactic to try to prevent what they're worried about, which is, it sounds like you're saying a dilution of Jewish culture. Yes, exactly. Um, And I would actually say it doesn't even just become one solution. It becomes looked up to as the ideal solution, the best, most likely to, to, uh, to succeed solution. A lot of the questions I get uh, when I give talks or when I give interviews is, was, has, does camp work? Has mm-hmm. camp been successful? Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting thing, right? I don't know if um, people of other cultures ask the question, does camp work mm-hmm. in that particular way? Like, mm-hmm. what, what, what do we mean by work? You know, um, so what I like to say is that I'm interested in how we got to that question in the first place to investing so much in the summer camp as an idea that Jews basically expect it to solve whatever problems they cite going on in American Jewish life. Yeah. Great. Well, while we're on this topic then, since you've mentioned concerns over intermarriage, one of your chapters addresses sexuality at summer camps. And as you just talked about, there was raising concern, growing concern about the possibility of Jews marrying non-Jews. And so then one way to deal with that is to encourage teenage campers and college-age counselors to develop romantic relationships, even though camps probably didn't want to advertise necessarily that they were promoting romance or sex. So how did you see the role of sex and sexuality, maybe even queerness, playing out in Jewish summer camps officially and unofficially? When I was writing this first as a dissertation many, many years ago, I didn't think I was going to write about sexuality at camp. I wanted to be taken, quote unquote, seriously as a young scholar. And so much of the humor around Jewish summer camps is the idea that they're hypersexual atmospheres. If you think about the movie Wet Hot American Summer, which is not explicitly about a Jewish summer camp, but in every way, shape or form is implicitly a Jewish summer camp. Uh, the whole the whole joke is that it's this extremely hypersexual place. And that's in a bunch of other places in the media and pop culture as well. So I didn't think I was going to study it. But what started to happen towards the end of my PhD was there were young Jewish women, primarily, who were just coming out of high school and their summer camp and youth movement experiences, who kind of riding the wave of Me Too and looking at the Me Too movement uh, started to notice some similarities between the ways that um, power dynamics in the adult world impact uh, sexual culture and lead to sexual harassment and how they were playing out in their youth movements and summer camps. Um, and so suddenly I said, oh, so there's really, there is something here I need to understand. It's something I want to uncover, which is how did Jewish summer camps get this reputation? And how did they become basically places that these young people who were just coming out of camps or still working or, or going to camp were saying were basically places of rape culture hmm. where consent was not a concern, where there was a lot, a lot of pressure to hook up. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to understand that historically. So I saw the role of sex and sexuality in a bunch of different places. Um, of course, it, it must be said that there's sort of a difference between pre-sexual revolution and post-sexual revolution, which also mixes with the rising anxiety about uh, interfaith marriage. So 
let's say in the 50s, uh, Jews were not very concerned about interfaith marriage at that point. There was that there were some, you know, there were people who were marrying out of the faith, but it was still considered a pretty infrequent phenomenon. And the way that romance and sexuality played out at camp was largely that people sent their kids to camp so they would meet the same kinds of Jews that they were. So, you know, you would meet the kinds of Jews that were into the same cultural or religious uh, expressions of Judaism as you and your family were. And pre-sexual revolution, leaders were not worried about actual intercourse happening at camp. Um, And so I actually found, interestingly, that campers had a lot of freedom to go into the opposite sex's bunk and things like that, um, you know, to quote unquote sneak out and, and everyone knew it was happening because no one was actually worried that none of the adults were worried that um, more than a little bit of kissing and necking, as they called it back then, uh, would be going on. What happens with the sexual revolution is there's, there's this push and pull. On the one hand, some camp leaders are concerned that uh, campers will actually have sex and that could produce, you know, unwanted pregnancies and things Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, that's exactly when rates of intermarriage start to rise and there's more expression in the media, not just the Jewish media, but also in broader American uh, magazines about interfaith marriage that start to raise more concerns in the Jewish community about this trend because at that time, again, they did not understand or, or believe that interfaith families would necessarily choose Jewishness uh, to raise their children with. And so what I found was that there were a bunch of different uh, factors that that kind of brewed together to create a very, very interesting environment in Jewish camps when it came to sex and sexuality. On the one hand, anxieties over interfaith marriage uh, give adults a reason to allow campers to do what they were going to want to do anyway. Um, And you have the sexual revolution happening at the same time, which on the one hand, some adults are, you know, applauding this change. Um, Jews tended to be uh, on the more liberal side when it came to sexual issues. And on the other hand, they have to be concerned about uh, what could happen uh, as sexual culture uh, amongst teens becomes more advanced. Um, And I also found that in Zionist camps, there was another factor, which was the Israel factor. I spoke to former campers who would talk about how their impression given to them by adults at camp or by Israelis at camp even was that Israel had a less Victorian kind of uptight sexual culture. Um, And so part of the Zionist camp ethos was to emulate Israeli culture and to basically to be kind of like Israeli culture when it came to sexuality um, and to give campers even more freedom. Now, this is interesting because actually everything I've read about Israeli culture would kind of go against this idea that it was less Victorian Mm -hmm. uptight. Um, Actually, there's a lot of uptightness in Israeli (laughs) sexual culture. Um, But, you know, what's interesting is that sometimes these things are based more on impressions than they are based on fact. Right. Um, One of the former campers also said Israelis smoked cigarettes, so I wanted to smoke cigarettes. Um, You know, this is is how these things can go. Um, So... The other piece of it, too, is that um, in order to get the buy-in of campers, to get campers excited about being there um, and to make them feel like they were taking on their camp's ideologies as their own, you know, on their own accord, willingly, um, sex and romance was a way to foster that feeling. Camp leaders understood that 
one of the things campers wanted most from going to camp was an opportunity to explore sex and romance. And so there are some sources that say very explicitly any efforts to curtail this will be at the detriment of everything else we're trying to do here. You know, every effort to stop uh, campers from hooking up basically takes away energy from the process of bringing them into our ideological fold. And so that's another reason that sex and sexuality becomes a huge part of um, the Jewish camp experience. It's, It's part of bringing campers into the camp's ideology willingly. Fascinating. Thank you. I will say that when I was a camp counselor, the first summer uh, that I was a counselor, I remember distinctly the camp rabbi saying on our first day of staff training after we finished lunch, that the camp had two main goals. The first was to instill a positive sense of Jewish identity in the campers. And the second was to encourage the counselors to pursue romantic interests for the hopes of marriage. I mean, it wasn't even like a, a veiled goal. It was the one of, you know, the first thing said to us. So for our last question, one of the things that struck me in your book is the point that you make and that you've been making today about this communal emphasis on placing the hope for a thriving Jewish future onto children through Jewish summer camps, even though it actually isn't true, as you point out, that most American Jewish adolescents attend summer camps. I believe you cite a statistic that says less than 50% of Jewish youth in the U.S. have attended summer camp. Uh, But the perception is that Jewish summer camps are integral to American Jews and to the American Jewish future. So given all of that, what is your hope for the future of Jewish summer camping, what would you say should be some of the priorities of Jewish summer camps? I would say that what I'm hoping camp educators and leaders in the Jewish world gain from either reading my book or hearing me speak somewhere or hearing an interview like this one is the idea that once upon a time, Jewish camps engage with a whole bunch of different kinds of ideologies and different kinds of Jewish cultural symbols. And we're actually a lot more diverse than they are today. You know, even camps that don't identify explicitly as Zionist, oftentimes they present Jewish culture to campers as Israeli culture. Um, There's nothing wrong with including Israel in part of the education of camp. Israel is a very important part of the Jewish present, um, no matter what one's politics are. That's actually just kind of a fact that Israel exists and and campers should know about it. But Once upon a time, campers were also exposed to other aspects of Jewish history, of diaspora Jewish culture, and it could be really, really positive for American Jewish summer camps to look at this history and think about how they could also expand what they teach children uh, is Jewish culture, because I think there's, there's something lost by focusing so exclusively in a way on Israel. Mm -hmm. One thing I think is really interesting is that in all of my years of camp, and I recently counted up how many months I worked at camp or went to camp, and it came out to almost, I think, over two years um, of my life. I don't think I ever heard anything about American Jewish history. And of course, I'm an American Jewish historian, so I would think that this is you know important, but it is very strange. Uh, all of the kids are American. They're all American Jews, and there's no conversation basically at all about the history of American Jewry. And when I teach 
American Jewish history to students at NYU, most of whom went to camp, even Jewish day school on top of camp, they don't know anything about it until they get to my class. Uh, and that's very strange, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm sort of my, my only, uh, my only agenda with the book in terms of the contemporary camping sector would be to expand the idea of what Jewish education could include. I think that camps are doing pretty well, despite a lot of different challenges. And I think the primary challenge today, well, I'd say there's two challenges. One running camp just gets more and more expensive from what I hear which is a problem. I, I think that a lot of people I know went to camp four weeks at least, if not eight weeks a summer, and that has become uh, cost prohibitive to, I think, most Jewish families today mm-hmm. um, due to rising prices on everything. The other challenge is the fact that Jewish camps have often lasted for kids way beyond what we think of as camp age, I think. Uh, a lot of Jewish educational camps have campers that are 15, 16, even 17 years old. And that is becoming, keeping those programs going, I think, is a challenge in a moment where teenagers are pulled to do everything that's good for their college applications. So you see now like, a rise in Jewish camps that have specialties so that kids, even in the summertime, can be doing something that's good for their college um, oh, wow. Okay. applications, which I find very depressing. Uh-huh. And not that necessarily it's so bad to go to a camp that's, you know, focused on the arts or cooking or, you know, science. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's something about the kind of general camping experience that you you learn a lot about yourself and might get exposed to things you didn't think you'd like because you did them at camp. Um, so that's a challenge, but I think um, the sector seems very well prepared to deal with those challenges and has never been as organized in a kind of unified way uh, as it is right now. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sandra Fox. You can find an excerpt from her book, The Jews of Summer, Summer Camp and Jewish Culture in Post-War America, in The Revealer's upcoming June issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of The Jews of Summer at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing the role mainstream media played in promoting Ronald Reagan's evangelical ideas and how that continues to shape our politics today. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.